This life-changing message comes to you from Church of the Harvest. It's our prayer that this message will inspire your life and bring hope to your future. If this is your first time joining us, thank you for doing so. You, you are joining us for the final week of a 31-week series uh, called, what, what's it called, JJ? The Story. We started all the way back in January. What we decided we were going to do is we were going to go through the Bible chronologically. Guys, here's the sad thing. Most Christians don't crack open their Bible outside of Sunday, if they even do then. So I was like, you know what? We need to know what God's plan is. What is this all about? And so we started back in February, and we've been going through the Bible chronologically. February, we started in Genesis. Today, we will end the book of Revelation, and we will conclude the story, and we will see everything come full circle. And um, I was going through some of this with Shauna yesterday, and I actually found myself moved by the end of the book of Revelation, because everything truly does come full circle, guys. And we've been talking since February about how it, the Bible has been all about God's plan to bring humanity back into relationship with him the way he originally intended it, Right? Why did he have to do that? He had to do that because we didn't choose God's plan. We didn't choose his, his love. We rejected him. Because of that, instead of being filled with life, death entered. Death became part of our story. And so, our relationship with God was broken, even though that's what we were created for. And so, as we've talked about the last few weeks, God wanted us back. What does he do? He launches a plan through the nation of Israel. He eventually brings us Jesus, God in the flesh. Jesus would grow up as a human being. He walks among us. He teaches us. He heals us. He, 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 he actually, on a Friday 2,000 years ago, he accomplished what he came to do, right? He was crucified on a cross. And in that moment, as he died, we know that our sins were placed on him. And he paid the price for it all as he gave his life willingly. But he didn't stay in that tomb. Three days later, we know that he rose from the dead and he held the keys to death, hell, sin, and the grave. He conquered. Amen? Amen. So Jesus rises from the dead and he says, now it's time for you to proclaim the good news. What is the good news? I talked about this a few weeks ago. The good news is that any person, regardless of your past, regardless of what you've done, regardless of what you look like, regardless of where you came from, regardless of your age, regardless of your gender, regardless of your race, any person that surrenders and puts their faith in the work and the person of Jesus for forgiveness of sin becomes a new creation. Old things are passed away. You become a child of God. You receive eternal life in the presence of God. And that doesn't start when you die. That starts the moment you surrender your life to Jesus. And because we have this hope of this good news, we can live fearlessly in the earth today knowing that God is for us. And we live our lives by the principles of God's word. It brings us success and joy and peace and patience, and even the strength to walk through the difficult times in life, right? It's the good news. So how do people hear the good news? We talked about that two weeks ago. This is the mission Jesus gave us. This is where we enter the story, right? And how many of you know, in 2,000 years, that mission has not changed? His mandate has not changed. The Lord is still about bringing every person back in relationship with him. Because of Jesus, that wall that separated us from God, the door is now wide open. 
But we have to make the choice to step through that door back into the arms of the Father, right? People argue, well, I don't like that door. Well, isn't there another door? Isn't there another way? I don't like this way. That's your choice. But the greatest news that's ever been given is that the door is wide open. All you got to do is step into it back into the arms of the Father. So, as a, so uh, we talked about how God, uh, Jesus gave us the Holy Spirit so that we could be him, we could be his hands and feet in the earth, walking in his name, walking in his authority, walking in his power. Last week we talked about how as a follower of Jesus, you are the church. You are the body of Christ. You have a vital part to play. You are a representative of Jesus. You have the mandate of being a witness to God's saving grace and the good news in your sphere of influence, in your world. And we are to proclaim that doors wide open, that open, that forgiveness is granted, that God is not angry with you. You can repent and you can come back to him. We spent the last couple of weeks going through the epistles. And the epistles teach us how to live a life that honors God and accomplishes his purposes in the earth until his return, right? How many of you would say that's pretty important? It's talking about us. So that brings us to today. The biblical canon ends with the book of Revelation. Now, we know the book of Revelation is, is a writing of prophecy written by who? The Apostle John. And this is the same John who wrote the Gospel of John, right? And he wrote the epistles of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. He's the same John that was referred to as the disciple that Jesus loved. He's the same John that, uh, that sat next to Jesus at the Last Supper. He's the same John that outran Peter to the empty tomb. And if you study about John a little bit, there, there's been documents found that are dated back to about 150 AD. And they tell us that, that John, we believe that John was the last living apostle. And we know that uh, during that time, the, the Roman emperor during that time tried to torture and execute John, right? Y'all know about this? Well, so what does he do? These documents that have been found tell us that, that the Roman emperor brings John into the Roman Colosseum and dunks him into a vat of boiling oil. Sounds like a bad day to me. These documents also tell us that John emerged from that vat of boiling oil unscathed. There's other writings that indicate that there may have been other attempts to kill John that were unsuccessful. They couldn't kill him, so what did they do? They sent him to the island of Patmos. Island of Patmos. Sean and I were actually saw the island of Patmos from a, from a ship a few years ago, saw it off in the distance. It's, um, it's a Grecian island in the Aegean Sea off the coast of Turkey. And apparently, John wouldn't quit stirring up trouble by proclaiming the good news. They couldn't kill him. They were probably afraid of him. So they banished him to this little island out there, right? So he couldn't cause any more trouble. You would think that'd be the end, right? <laughs> it's not the end. It's not the end for John. Most historians believe that John was between 80 and 90 years old at this point. So we know that during this time, Jesus appears to John, right? And gives him this great vision, this, this revelation, this prophecy of future events. And you know, one of the first things I find funny, it's just in the first few verses of Revelation chapter 1, is, is how John responds. This is the disciple that Jesus loved. This is the one who laid his head on Jesus' chest. 
This is the one, right? So how does he respond? He responds just like anybody else who God appears to in the Bible. Look at Revelation chapter 1, verses 17 and 18. And in John speaking, he says, When I saw him, when I saw Jesus, I fell at his feet as though dead. I guess I would probably do the same thing. Right? And what happens? Just like we see in Scripture, then he, Jesus, placed his hand on me, his right hand on me, and said, what are the words? Do not be afraid. We see it over and over in Scripture. Don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I'm alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys to death and Hades, death and hell. This is how the book of Revelation starts. Now, let's talk about the book of Revelation for a minute, because... Everybody here is expecting something a little different. The book of Revelation is intimidating to many people today. Wouldn't you agree? If you're like me, I feel like sometimes when I study the book of Revelation that I have as many questions as I do answers. And I think part of the reason is that partially because um, part of it is because there is a lot of symbolism, symbolism and imagery in the book of Revelation. I think that there is, um, we have heard a lot of teachings and we've read a lot of books maybe on the book of Revelation. And a lot of them contradict each other. I think a lot of us think that we've got Revelation figured out because we saw left behind. <laughs> but how many of you would agree that people are fascinated by the book of Revelation? And I was thinking, what is it that fascinates us so much? There is a lot there. But what fascinates us so much? And I think one of the big things is that most people, we, we want to know what's going to happen. We want to know when it's going to happen. And we want to know how it's going to happen. We want details, right? And we can pull some details out of the book of Revelation. And there's some other things that are a little more fuzzy, we're not so sure about, not so clear on. Many theologians believe that John was writing in some of those places, he was writing about things that he couldn't understand, he had never seen, that were never invented. And he was describing them the best he could by the Holy Spirit. So I will give you, for a moment before we jump on in, I'll give you a few of my personal thoughts for just a moment on the book of Revelation. I will say this, it is one of the most hotly debated books in scripture. Would you guys agree with that? And I'll be honest with you guys, as a pastor, it, it grieves me to see heated debates that are causing division in the church over prophecy in scripture. It bothers me. It grieves me. To me, there are a lot of other non-negotiable crystal clear things that we need to settle on and say these are non-negotiables. And of course, the big debate has been for a long time, what? What's the big one? Hey, brother, what are you? Are you pre-trib or mid-trib or post-trib? What are you? Well, I'm a follower of Jesus is what I am. And I know many men and women of God, men and women that God is using mightily, they can argue each side of this debate very convincingly. But it boils down to your interpretation of a number of scriptures. And guys, I'll tell you this. If your view is different than mine, that is quite all right with me. We can still walk together if we believe that Jesus 
is the only way, the truth, and the life. Amen? It's not a deal breaker. I've heard people say, well, if we allow people to believe in the pre-tribulation church and it doesn't turn out that way, then they're not going to be ready and strong enough if the tribulation does come. I say phooey. I don't buy it. And I'll tell you why. Number one, if it's true, then you and I did a terrible job discipling people. We failed. And in many ways, the church has failed in discipleship. It has. I'll tell you this. We have done a terrible job discipling people if they can't stand for Christ through very difficult, trying times, even if it means their life. I thought about this. Those in the New Testament early church, guys, they didn't have the book of Revelation. They didn't have it. They didn't have the great tribulation to scare them straight. But like I talked about last week, they were all in, so it didn't matter. They were all in, 100%. I think we should be prepared for whatever we face, just like they were. And my personal feeling is that discipleship is the biggest thing we need to be primarily focused on right now, not heated debates as to the order of end-time events. So many Christians today just want to talk about the end times, but what I found is that 95% of them are leading nobody to Jesus and they're not discipling anybody. So what is the point? What's the point? It's awful quiet in here. I think the church needs to focus on first things first, and I believe that if we properly disciple people, they'll be ready for whatever is to come. You know who else wanted details of the future? You want to know who wanted details? The disciples of Jesus wanted details, and I'm going to show it to you. We read a few weeks ago from Acts chapter 1 as we were talking about the early church, and we know in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, it said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses. Y'all know that, right? Go back two verses and look at this for just a minute. I'd never put this together before. In Acts chapter 1, verse 6, it says, So when the apostles were with Jesus, let me, hold on a second. Let me back up. Let me set this up. What had happened was, Jesus had been appearing to the disciples for, for a month or so, right? And he tells them, go meet me on this mountaintop. I, I don't think they have any idea that he's about to send, ascend into heaven from that mountaintop. But they do it. They go up to this mountaintop, and there's Jesus waiting on them. They get up there. They're still trying to understand what all is going on, what's happening. And here's what they say. So when the apostles were with Jesus on this mountaintop, they kept asking him. Look what they were asking. Lord, has the time come for you to free Israel and restore our kingdom? Look at Jesus' reply. He says, the Father alone has the authority to set those dates and times. But they are not for you to know. But... For you, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And then verse 9 says, after this, he was taken up into a cloud while they were watching, and they could no longer see him. Do you guys see how Jesus redirects the question to the heart of the matter? They had been taught that the Messiah was going to come as this mighty warrior and that he was probably going to overthrow Rome and that he was going to reestablish the throne of their father David and that he was going to bring back Israel's glory days. Now, they're sitting there going, Jesus, is, is this it? Is it time? How's it going to happen? When's it going to happen? Are we ready? Is this it? What's it going to look like? See, people were confident of how the Messiah was going to come and what his mission would be and what it would look like, but they were wrong. 
Jesus' life looked nothing like they had expected. Yet he fulfilled every prophecy that they had memorized in the Old Testament perfectly. Remember what we talked about? Uh, when Jesus was hanging on the cross, they're watching him die. And imagine how many of them were standing there and questioning and going, hold up. Were we wrong? We thought this dude was the Messiah. And he's dying. Remember our message about four weeks ago? When all of a sudden he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And started quoting Psalm 22. Well, Ramez, remember this? And I believe some of those people are standing there and going, wait a minute. We had that prophecy all wrong. He's fulfilling it right before our eyes. It's not at all the way we had pictured or imagined it. But he fulfilled it perfectly in every way. Guys, my personal opinion is, I think many people are absolutely convinced of what the end times will look like. I think many people think they have got it all figured out. And I think many are going to be very, very surprised. I think we're going to get to a point. Things are going to be happening in the world. And we're going to stop all of a sudden and go, wait a minute. This looks just like that passage in Revelation that I read the other day. And it looks nothing like what I had pictured. Is this right? And the Holy Spirit's going to confirm it in us. This is the fulfillment of what I said. Yes, I see warnings in the book of Revelation. Are there things coming? Oh, yeah. Oh, there's some things coming. The church need to be ready? Yeah. Church needs to be ready. Church needs to be set. Do I believe there's going to be a weeding out of Christians in the coming years? I do. I think as the years progress, this world's going to get darker. We see it in Scripture. And I believe we're going to find out who the true believers really are. I believe it's going to be very obvious. But Christians are freaking out right now. I would present to you guys that we as believers aren't meant to be freaking out. Do you know, now this is going to come as a shock and a surprise to you guys. There is not one scripture in the Bible where Jesus tells us to hoard food and water and ammo. It's not there. We were not called to be doomsday preppers. As a matter of fact, Jesus simply told us to keep oil in our lamp and to be a witness. He didn't tell us to do Anything differently, even if we see the great tribulation right in front of us. He didn't tell us to do anything differently. It's business as usual. Do we need to do a better job at winning the loss and discipling? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We need to do a lot better job at it. We do. It's our primary mission. But people are stopping today and they're going, oh, Lord, things are looking so bad. We're almost there. What do you want me to do? And he goes, what I've always told you to do. But it's almost here. Our nation is crumbling. The end is upon us. What do you want me to do? What I've always told you to do. Anything extra? No. Do what I always told you to do. Guys, for the believer, 
The book of Revelation does prepare us for what's to come. It does confirm God's word in regards to what we're going to see in the earth. And I think a lot of people read the, Revel read the book of Revelation. They just want to get to the juicy part. They want to read about the Antichrist and the beast and the mark of the beast and beheadings and, and different things like that. All kinds of fun. Right? I would present to you guys that for the believer, the book of Revelation is a book of hope. For the book of Revelation, it wraps up our story as we know it in the earth. Might we face some hard, difficult times? Yes, absolutely, absolutely. But God promises that he wins. And if we stick with him, he will see us through. The promises of the book of Revelation are for us. In the, in the story, hopefully you guys read the, the last chapter of the story, chapter 31 this week, in one of the commentaries, um, Max Licato is talking about a friend of his by the name of Dan Smith. And this friend, Dan, Dan ran uh, a number of years ago, he ran the, um, the triathlon in, uh, in Lake Placid, New York. Anybody ever ran a triathlon? <sighs> yeah, me either. Evidently, this triathlon in Lake Placid is, is very famous because of the community involvement uh, what they do is the residents of the it's only a, a town of about 2,500 people. And so the residents gather up in the high school football stadium. And as the runners, swimmers, bikers, the competitors of the triathlon come in, they run their last mile by doing four laps around the track of the football field with the residents cheering them on. Okay? But the really cool thing about this is that the residents don't stay there just for the winter. They're known to stay there into the afternoon and even the evening until the very last person crosses the finish line. And so Max Licato talks about his friend Dan and says, on this particular year, his friend was one of the last ones. And said, Dan, when he was about 30 minutes away from the high school football field, it was everything he could do to not give up, to not quit. And said that his legs were cramping and he had blisters and his feet were killing him and he was just trying to keep going. And he said at that, about that 30 minute mark, 30 minutes from the high school stadium, the sun was beginning to set. It was getting dark enough that he saw the lights come on on the high school football field. And he said suddenly he knew where the finish line was. He couldn't place his eyes right on it, but he saw evidence of the finish line ahead. And he said, over the next couple minutes, he could begin to hear the roar of the crowd at the football stadium. And so 30 minutes later, he's entering the field. He's entering the football field. And as he does, there are thousands of people screaming and cheering for him that he's never met in his life. And he said, over the PA, they announced him entering the stadium as Dan Smith from San Antonio, Texas. And so the crowd just went nuts. And he picked up his pace and ran those last four laps. And he said, in that moment... There was no pain or difficulty or struggle. He was able to run right on across that finish line. And that's what Max Licato finishes in that story. He taught, said that Dan finished strong, surrounded by a cloud of witnesses that were cheering him on and waiting for him at the finish line. And, guys, that's how I see our study of the story come to an end. Folks, the Bible describes the, this life as a race, Right? And as I said before, if you're a believer, if you're a follower of Jesus, your race ends in victory. You may be tired, 
You may feel like you've been running forever. It may feel like the longest marathon the world has ever seen. But your race ends in victory. Many people are weary and want to give up. But God tells us through the book of Revelation that there is a great finish. There is a great day coming. And if you truly open your eyes and you truly open your ears, you will see the lights ahead. And you will hear the cheers of the great cloud of witnesses giving us the strength to keep going. So it's been this long journey through the story this year as we started in Genesis and we've gone chapter by chapter, book by book, finally ending in the book of Revelation. And, and we've looked several times at the story as a timeline. I gave you guys a timeline of the story on week one, but it, it, some of you may have read the commentary, the heart of the story this week. And I love how he describes in there that the story of the Bible isn't really a line. It's, it's really a circle. And as we come to the book of Revelation, what has happened What's happened is that everything has come full circle. We find ourselves at a new heaven, at a new earth. We find ourselves back at the tree of life. And it's not an end. It's really a beginning. So the book of Revelation has a little bit of an outline. And if you look, if we're looking at Revelation chapter 1 and verse 19, Jesus is speaking to John here. And in verse 19, he says, write, therefore, he's telling John, write what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. And so, what it, so he tells, Jesus tells John to do these three things, to write what he's seen, what is now, and what will take place later. So this is what he does. So he writes, firstly, he writes what he's seen. What has he seen? He's seen Jesus. Jesus has appeared to him and given him this great revelation and given him some commands, right? So that's what chapter one is about. And then he's told to write what is now. So for John and for us, what is now? It's the church age. This is where we're at right now, Right? And so that's why you'll find in the next few chapters of Revelation, he's writing messages to different churches, right? And here's the reality. We are the church. And the message is clear that this is our message. And it even says in chapter 1, verse 3, that we must heed these words. And it says that they are a blessing to us. So he writes what is he seen. He writes what is now. And then John is charged to write a vision of what will take place in the future. And this is where we learn of things like the lamb opening the scrolls and the antichrist and the beast and the great tribulation and the catching away of the saints and, and all those things. So in chapter 21, chapter 21 describes the second coming of Jesus as well as the new Jerusalem. And guys, we're talking about doing a class on the book of Revelation this year. Obviously, I just have minutes left. And there's a few things that I want to say to you that I see in this that I think would be very proper in, in wrapping up the story. But I encourage you to don't shy away and don't be intimidated by the book of Revelation. Study it and allow God to speak to you and the Holy Spirit to lead you and to guide you through it. It is a blessing in your life. But I want to go to Revelation chapter 21. And like I say, in, in chapter 21, what we find is the church age, that is now, the church age has passed. The tribulation is over, and we are in heaven, and the new Jerusalem is about to descend. And I can only imagine John seeing this because it had to be, I can only imagine it being like the triathlon runners seeing the lights ahead. He knew this was it. This is, this is the end. This is what it's all about. This is the culmination of everything. And in Revelation 22, verse 2, it says, Then I, John, saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. 
Now, now many places you'll see in Revelation, John says, I saw this or I saw that. But we see an emphasis here. He, it's like he stops and he says, and I, John, I saw, I saw what no one has seen. I saw the beginning of a new story. I saw the new Jerusalem. And some would say, well, what, what is the new Jerusalem what, what, what is the new Jerusalem? What does that represent? Guys, I don't believe it represents anything. I believe it is a literable, tangible, touchable, walkable city. And it will descend from heaven and take its rightful place on the earth. And I'll show you part of that. If, if you look, you can turn to it if you want to. But in John chapter 14, verses 2 and 3, Jesus is speaking. And this, y'all know this. It says, my father's house has many what? As many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I was coming there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. He talks about how he's preparing a place. The Greek word that we translate there, place, is the Greek word topos. And it's where we get words like topography and topographical. It means place. It means location. And it generally is talking about something tangible. And so the new Jerusalem will descend from heaven onto the earth, taking its rightful place. Guys, I spent a good amount of time focusing on this new Jerusalem because this is our city. This is our home. And so I focused on that a little bit and, and got a couple of things out of this that I want to share with you as far as the promises that are associated with the book of Revelation and the New Jerusalem. So first thing I want to mention is God has room for you. Jesus said he has prepared a place and he has room for you. Back in chapter 21, verse 15, it says, the angel who talked to me held in his hand a golden measuring stick to measure the city, its gates, and its walls. And when he measured it, he found that it was a square as wide as it was long. In fact, its length, width, and height were each 1,400 miles. Then he measured the walls and found them to be 216 feet thick according to the human standard used by the angel. Guys, I don't know if you can picture this in your mind, but this is a crazy big city. There will be no overcrowding. It is 1,400 miles in width, depth, and height. If this city were placed in the United States today, it would reach from the Appalachian Mountains to the coast of California. It would reach from Canada to Mexico. One city, guys. And remembering that that's just the ground floor. I don't know what this 1,400 miles high thing looks like, but I know that if it's stacked up like we stack buildings, it will be over 600,000 stories high. There's plenty of room for you. There's plenty of room for billions of people. We know this city has gates where we can come and go. And I'll be able, I believe we'll be able to walk outside of those gates. I believe we'll be able to experience God's creation and nature and everything else in its fullness, just like we love to enjoy on the earth. But the heart of God's creation will be in this city where he has made plenty of space for me and you. In my Father's house, there are many rooms. And not only is there plenty of room for you, there's also plenty of provision 
Look at this. If we go down in chapter 22, verse 1 and 2, it says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. Great river, right? Flowing down the street, main street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit each and every month. Guys, and so in the center of the city, you've got this river, and you've got the tree of life, which is so big that it spans both sides of a great river. I, I just picture that tree from Avatar. Y'all remember that? Massive tree. And it says that it will take 12 months out of the year to harvest from this tree. Guys, huge provision for a huge city, for God's people. And it was made for you as a follower of Jesus. There's plenty of room. There's plenty of provision. Last thing I want to mention to you guys is God has grace for you. Guys, through this, I saw God's grace like I have never seen it before. A lot of people, I don't know whether you're sitting here and your life is surrendered to Jesus or not, but God's grace still abounds towards you. And he welcomes you as you come to him and you repent and you surrender. You are welcome. And if, through, if you've been with us through the story by now and you haven't gotten it yet, guys, God chooses the least, least likely candidates. It doesn't matter what your background looks like. His forgiveness is unmeasurable. His grace abounds beyond comprehension. Revelation 21, 12 Marie verse 12 and 14, it says, She, talking about the New Jerusalem, she had great high walls with 12 gates and names written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So there's 12 gates and there's 12 foundations. On the 12 gates are written the names of the 12 sons of Jacob, the, the tri 12 tribes of Israel. On the 12 foundations are written the names of the 12 apostles. Guys, don't overlook this. I got thinking about these guys. Who are these sons of Jacob whose names are written on the gates? I first thought of Simeon and Levi. Remember Simeon and Levi? They convinced a tribe of men to, to uh, all get themselves circumcised. Three days into their recovery, they went, he, they went in and slaughtered them all. Think about Judah. His name's on one of those gates. He's the same one who went in and mistook his daughter-in-law for a prostitute, slept with her, and got her pregnant. Think about the other brothers. They all conspired to kill Joseph. They would have succeeded if Reuben hadn't stopped them and decided to sell him into slavery anyway. These guys, our names, are written on the gates of the new Jerusalem. These are warring, scheming guys. Think about the apostles, the disciples of Jesus, whose names are written on the foundations. Think about Peter, who denied even knowing the man. Think about James and John. Remember when their mama comes along and asks for reserved seats for her sons next to Jesus in heaven? Thomas, who doubted Jesus until he stood physically before him? The same guys who told the children to leave Jesus alone? The same guys that the Bible says all forsook him and fled in his final moments? For his crucifixion? 
These are the guys whose names are written on the foundations of our new Jerusalem. Guys, do you see it? They're all there. These 24 men, they're all there because of the grace of God. I mean, we write people's names. We engrave people's names on things because, because they're heroes or because they're great philanthropists and gave a bunch of money, right? God writes down people's names because he's covered them in his grace. How many of you are thankful? If God has grace for these guys, he has grace for you. You may have been thinking for a long time that God is angry and ticked off at you. Hear me, guys. Let the fear melt away. And know that if you have surrendered your life to Jesus, he has written your name in the Lamb's book of life. He promises that he will no longer even remember your sin. But before I close, you know the best part of this? In Revelation chapter 22 and verse 3, it says, no longer will there be any curse. Of course, we believe that God forgives our sins, but know this too. The curse on this world will be gone. What is the curse? The curse is the consequence of sin. Shame, fear, hatred, hostility, sickness, disease, chaos, the things that's cursed. It's what we see wreaking havoc in our world today, right? All the side effects of a fallen world will cease to exist in the new Jerusalem. The tendency of our flesh to respond out of selfishness, gone. No greed, no need for competition and self-exaltation, no sickness, no disease. The curse is gone. Where did the curse come from? We first see the curse in Genesis chapter 3. When he's doing, it says, but the Lord God called to the man, called to Adam and said, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, but I was afraid because I was naked and so I hid. Adam had been used to walking in the garden with God. But what had happened? Sin happened. The curse happened. Now he hears the voice of God. Figures God's mad at him and he hides. And what's happened from that day up until this day, humanity has been hiding from God ever since. And we may not cover ourselves in fig leaves, but we cover ourselves in other things. Busyness, careers, habits, addictions, all kinds of different things. So because of this, relating to God for Adam and Eve was no longer a walk in the garden. Neither was relating to each other. It looks like Adam and Eve got along real well before sin, didn't they? But the moment they sinned, they are blaming each other and going at it, right? After sin, human relationships became complex and complicated and awkward. Look at the next two human beings mentioned, Cain and Abel, right? The worst part of this curse was death. He said in, in, in verse 19, Genesis 3, 19, he says, you will return to the ground for out of it you were taken. The moment they ate of that fruit, humanity started running from, their, from God. I mean, even nature itself was at war with humanity from that point onward. And for the first time, human lives 
it had an expiration date on them, right? Everything changed. The good news is that none of this will exist, guys. It all comes full circle. No longer will there be any curse. Can you imagine what that world will be like? I don't think you can because we've never experienced anything like it. Now, there's probably somebody out there that's going, well, brother, I'm not under the curse. I'm under the blood. Yes, you are. Hallelujah. But you still live under the curse in a fallen world. That's why somebody just cut you off in traffic and flipped you off on the way here, right? We still suffer the consequences of living in a fallen world. The curse will be gone. Everyone will truly love God and love their neighbor. There will be no news except for good news. Our streets and neighborhoods, they'll be filled with love and kindness. Love and joy will be the heartbeat of the city. And I think we have a hard time imagining it because we've never seen it. But we will. We will. In Revelation 21.5, he said, I am making all things new. I am making everything new. No more hospital visits. No viruses. No divorce. No hatred. No loneliness. No foreclosures. No abuse. No racism. No cancer. It's gone. All things made new. Guys, he's the king, and it's all rightfully his anyway. He will make all things new. To do anything less would be an admission of defeat, and he will not be defeated. Look at what Paul says. And guys, I'll tell you something really funny as I read this scripture. We were sitting in worship, and I turned to Shauna, and I turned my phone. Mr. Robert Montgomery and a a couple other men are, are, are are at a conference this weekend. Mr. Robert sent me a message And he sent me this verse this morning. Romans 8, 19. I'm going to read it to you from the Message Bible. It says, the created world itself can hardly wait for what is coming next. As I believe that all of creation can sense it. This thing's coming to an end. It's coming down to it. He is coming to make all things new and the earth itself cannot wait. The book of Revelation holds the promise of a new day, a new earth, a new kingdom. Everything will come full circle, and we will experience life the way it was originally intended in the garden, perfect in every way. Guys, I hope this excites you as we end the story, because it's kind of like, that's why I shared that story about that triathlon. It's kind of like that. We get tired and, and, and weak and kind of beat up by the circumstances of the world. And if that's you, I would encourage you to look up and to see the light. The, the, the finish line is ahead. And there is a cloud of witnesses that are cheering you on. And as I thought about this, I, I wrote this down and... I feel like I need to say this I, publicly. But some of you may have known this, but... I would just want to apologize and give sympathy to Miss Terry who lost her dad last night. And she's here at church this morning running sound. 
We appreciate you and love you. Really do. <laughs> Mr. Dick Cheney was a good man. And we loved him. But guys, I want you to think for a moment about the loved ones that you have lost. Maybe it was a parent. Maybe it was a grandparent. Or maybe it was a sibling. A friend. Pastor. Coach. Maybe it was your child. Maybe it was the child that you miscarried. Guys, many of us have lost some loved ones this year. Hmm. They are chanting your name. They are the cloud of witnesses. They're saying, I can see the finish line. You're almost there. And they're encouraging you to pick up the pace. And I hope that you can allow that to motivate you to run faster and to run harder than you have ever run before. To give more forgiveness, to be more patient, to be more like Jesus, to share the good news, just to keep on going. Guys, whatever this world may hold before the end, God knew that with his help, you were more than capable of overcoming it. More than capable. And it's a great promise that awaits us at the finish line. And that's how I want to end the story. That's where it ends. Here's the cool thing. As a believer, no matter what happens in this life, in this world, your best days are always ahead of you. Always. And you can make it. Amen? Let me get you guys to stand up. Let me get the worship team to come up. Guys, that's what the end, that's what the end of time looks like for you if you're a follower of Jesus. If you have not surrendered your life to Jesus, then I don't mean to be blunt. Well, yes, I do. It doesn't apply to you. And I'm not saying that in a mean way. It's it's your choice. It's your choice. Have you ever heard it said? that this life is the only hell that a Christian will ever know? On the flip side, this life is only heaven that the unbeliever will ever know. This is as good as it gets for you if you haven't surrendered your life to Jesus. This is it. I don't know, guys. Life can be tough. (laughs) I look forward to that home, that place that Jesus has prepared for me. How about you? Let me get you to bow your heads for a minute.
Guys, I talked last week about being all in. I made the statement that if you confess Jesus as Lord at any point in your life, but your life did not change, then you did not confess Jesus as Lord with all your heart. When you confess Jesus as Lord, things begin to change. If your life looks the same before God as it did last year and the year before that and the year before that, then you are not surrendered. God loves us too much to leave us in the state that he finds us in. He loves you too much to leave you the way that he found you. As we were singing that song, The Canvas and the Clay, Zach came up and said, the Lord spoke to me and just told me that, that those promises apply to those who love me and are called according to my purpose. Guys, that can be you. But don't be deceived. The darkness is going to get darker. And there will be people who've called themselves Christians their whole lives are going to fall away because they refuse to truly bow their heart and surrender their life to Jesus. Please don't let that be you. It's not worth it, guys. The Bible says that we have to repent. We turn from our sinful ways and we confess Jesus as Lord. Jesus is Lord is not three simple words that you speak that changes everything. Jesus is Lord is a declaration of your heart. Guys, I hate to break this to you. I hadn't said it in a while, but nowhere in Scripture is anyone ever led to receive Jesus. Nowhere in Scripture does anybody ever say a prayer to receive Jesus. It says they believed and were baptized, and then they went about the Father's business. That tells me that it's not about any words that you could possibly speak. That confession of lordship is from your heart. And the fruit of your life is the evidence of that confession. Guys, it's heavy right now. Holy Spirit's touching some of you. And we talked about his job is to draw us, convict us, draw us to the Father. With every head bowed. If you recognize right now, I don't care if you've prayed a prayer before or not. If you recognize that your life is not surrendered to Jesus, he is not Lord of your life. I want you to be bold and raise your hand, guys. Come on, let me see it. Who says I need to surrender my life to Jesus? Who else? All right. Two. Who else? Come on, guys. Holy Spirit. Do your. Anybody else that says, I've got to surrender? I invite you to pray with me. We are going to pray a prayer. Remember, it's about truly meaning and believing with all your heart. That's when things change.
Let's pray together. God, I thank you so much for Jesus. I recognize that I'm lost in my sin. I'm living for myself. I'm trying to do it alone. I think I know what's best. I'm living out of my own pride and arrogance. And I repent today. I turn from that. I recognize that I'm totally wrong. I recognize that I'm lost and alone. So I turn from my sin. I turn from my sinful ways. I lay it all before you. And I ask you to forgive me for the way I've lived my life, for the way that I've fought, and the way that I've walked. I want to be different. So today, I give my life to you. I thank you, Jesus, that you paid the price for all that junk. You took my penalty. And I today call you my Lord. You're my Savior. It's not just words. It's a decision. I'm going to follow you all the days of my life. I'm going to follow your will and not my own. I even put my dreams aside and I choose to do your bidding from this moment forward in Jesus' name. Be Lord of my life. Lead me and guide me that I may accomplish everything you have created me to do. Holy Spirit, fill me, empower me to be everything you called me to be. I'll follow you to the end. In Jesus' name. If you'd like to get more information about resources from Church of the Harvest, please check out our website at midsouthharvest.org. You may also contact us by phone at 662-890-1573 or toll free at 866-383-8277. You are Lord, I'm a sinner.